Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Be sure to check out the Writers Guild Foundation inside the Writers Room event on Thursday, May 28th, featuring Matthew Weiner and the staff of Mad Men, where they'll discuss how they crafted one of America's iconic period dramas. Tickets for the Mad Men event and many other great Writers Guild events are on sale on their website, wgfoundation.org, and they're open to the public, not just WGA members. And for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. First, I'm pleased to have on a prominent literary manager who has spent nearly a decade at boutique management firm, The Schumann Company, which represents top showrunners and in-demand screenwriters. His clients have also been featured and represented on The Blacklist and The Tracking Board's Hit List, and he's an Ivy League graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, A.B. Fisher. Thanks for coming on, A.B. Thanks for having me. We always like to get started to find out a little bit about you and where are you from originally and how you got started in the industry? Uh, sure. I grew up in Miami, Florida. Um, big uh, film and, and TV fan from when I was younger. You know, my both my parents. You know, I, I have two kids, and neither of my parents censored me when I was a little kid for, for better or worse. <laughs> and I grew up. My, my my dad used to take me out of school early on Fridays every once in a while when a big movie opened. We would go go to see it together, and that was like actually one of my fondest memories of growing up. But I, I've always been a huge film and TV fan, and uh, growing up in Miami, you know, L.A. and Hollywood just seemed a million miles away. And sort of got my intro into the business when I was in college. As you said, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I got a job working through the marketing and distribution department at Disney. They had this thing called the College Network. Um, which I don't think no longer, I don't think exists anymore, but uh, they had a uh, college kid stationed in basically every city in the country and back when they were releasing practically a movie every weekend and they would assign you to a local movie theater and you would be the Disney rep uh, in that city and for me it was Philadelphia and I would go to a local movie theater and have to write down any marketing materials that were in the lobby, like one sheet standees. Uh, and then I would go uh, into the auditorium and log the trailers that were on before each Disney movie and log any audience reaction to that trailer. And I would go back to you know my apartment and email that information back and they would use it for you know, marketing distribution purposes. Mm-hmm. And then I entered for them the summer before my senior year of college where I traveled around the Western U.S. doing the same thing. Um, and then they offered me a job when I got out of school, but I didn't want to work in marketing and distribution. You know, I wanted to you know, work more on the creative side. And that's when I got my first job, uh, like most people, as an assistant um, for the chairman of Beacon Pictures, Armion Bernstein. That was my first you know, real industry job post, uh, post-college. Oh, cool. And you'd mentioned films and TV growing up, how they had sort of an impact on you. What films and TV shows have had the greatest influence on you? Oh, man, that is one of the, that's like the million dollar <laughs> question. It's like, what's your favorite movie? Right. For our second uh, question, what are, what? Uh, you know, I grew up on 80s TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, you know, I remember watching like different strokes, Facts of Life, Silver Spoons as a kid. Um, you know, amazing stories, uh, you know, was short lived that Spielberg did was, you know, one of my favorite, 
shows of all time. I wish they would do more anthology shows like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the CW has a pilot this year, Tales from the Dark Side, which is bringing back sort of the episodic anthology if it gets picked up. Um, but uh, yeah, I was a big 80s TV fan. You know, my parents watched, you know, Love Boat and Fantasy Island and um, and then the, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, was probably, you know, growing up had the biggest impact on me just in terms of, you know, uh, cinematic value and the big spectacle. Um, really, that movie was outside of Star Wars probably was, uh, you know, uh, made me really love and appreciate movies. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned after college working at beacon and getting a job there how did you switch to representation and what is it about representation that uh, you enjoy that made it your path yeah sure so i I worked for two different production companies i I worked as an assistant at beacon for only about a year and a half and then was promoted i sort of had a quick rise to becoming a development executive uh, which i did for about three or four years um, and you know what I, there were certain things that I loved about development and certain things that I did not love about development mm-hmm. and that sort of helped me make the move into management. And, you know, what I didn't like about development was, you know, your job as a development executive is to, you know, really keep the train moving on your slate of projects, try to get a director on something, get an actor on something. And it's really difficult to do when you're on projects that, you know, you don't feel like are going to get made or you don't really wholeheartedly believe in, but it's, that's your job to, to do that. And, um, at times I felt like, wow, this is a big giant waste of time. Um, but what I loved about the job, uh, was sitting down with writers. I, I love the creative process. I love giving notes. I love sitting in a room and generating ideas um, especially with writers that, you know, I truly believe in. And, you know, if I could write myself, I would have done it, but I felt like I was a, I was much better at critiquing someone else's writing than, you know, doing the writing myself. But, you know, I loved, you know, that, as I said, the entire creative process. And I got to a point in my career where I was like, do I want to be on you know, the development track? Is, you know, working at a studio my ultimate goal is, you know, being, you know, as uh, running somebody's production company, my ultimate goal, and I felt like the job is never going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there are always going to be things that you know I'm going to have to work on that I don't love, and I didn't love that about the job, and I felt like you know what, how could I take the aspects of the job that I really love and leave out the parts of the job that I did not love. <laughs> And, you know, just do that for a living. And I felt like management was the best option where I could pick and choose the writers that I wanted to be in business with working on, you know, that had similar tastes that I had and, uh, you know, work on projects that I, you know, really believed in. And, you know, management seemed to be the route that would allow me to, to do that. And, you know, I, I can say honestly, like I didn't get into it like a lot of people do as a means to an end to producing Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of, I sort of transitioned into that, but, you know, it was really a matter of, you know, just a true love for writers and, and the craft of writing. 
And I just decided, naively, I guess I could look back now and say, uh, I'm going to start my own company. And I literally hung a shingle in the second bedroom of a duplex I was living in, you know, 14 years ago mm-hmm. uh, with no clients and, you know, just, I guess, my taste and my reputation and said, you know what, if, if I don't make it, I could always go back and get another development job. But, you know. Thankfully, here I am, you know, 14 plus years later, and uh, I'm still doing it. So I must be doing something right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, speaking about the manager-producer scenario, uh, what is your take on that, on the producer role that many managers take on some of their clients' projects? When do you think it's appropriate, and when do you think it just becomes excessive? It's just sort of hanging on to a client's project. Yeah, you know, the, it's it's a, it's a little bit of a tough question to answer because every manager is different. Every client is different. You know, I guess I can only speak to, you know, myself. And, and it's also a bit different in features and in television. I think on the feature side, there's been, you know, a big pushback uh, from the studio and on having just managers sort of glom on to, to produce you know, we option a lot of material and, you know, that's an, you know, an easy way to, you know, obviously warrant us being producers on something. Um, you know, some managers feel like, well, I developed the idea with them. So, you know, I should be a producer on it. Uh, I mean, some managers just might piss them off, but like, I I don't know, I kind of feel like that's our job as managers to do that anyway. Mm. Oftentimes a client will come to me and say, hey, I want you to do this with me. Um, you know, I'm practically their producer partner on every project, whether I'm producing it or not. You know, I go through the, you know, notes process, you know, in every step of the process when it's set up anyway. Uh, but they want me more involved um, from a managerial standpoint on the project to be able to interact with the studio network. It's very different when you know, you're calling, if it's a, if it's a TV thing, if you're calling, you know, the studio network as a person's representative, uh, then when you're calling as, you know, the producer on the project. Right. So, you know, oftentimes a client will ask that, you know, I be involved. Um, so it, it's sort of case by case. Oftentimes, you know, it's more important that the client get out and meet with producers, especially if, you know, uh, they don't have a ton of experience, but they're able to develop, like people want to buy something from them. Uh, the exposure is far more important for their careers than it is for, you know, me to be a producer on it and go in directly to a studio or, or a network. Um, so it, it, it is a bit of a case-by-case scenario. Sure. You represent a lot of television writers, and we're staff se- staffing season is well underway. Yep. Um I wanted to get your advice for some writers out there who are going out for their first staffing meetings, whether it's with a showrunner or network or production company, whatever. Do you have any sort of advice for them when taking these meetings? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, do your homework, number one. Um, You know, if it is a producer or showrunner, you know, assuming you're represented, uh, you know, know the material uh, that if it's a pilot that they're producing or a current show, you should, you know, go in there over prepared. You know, it's always better to be over prepared than under prepared. Um, you know, if your reps know anything about that person, any background information that, 
you know, you might have in common with that person. That's always good to know. Sometimes that always doesn't work out that way. But, but again, do your homework, read the material, know the material inside and out. If, you know, it's a show or a pilot that, you know, uh, is based on something, do your research. Uh, don't ever walk into a meeting well, A, I mean, it seems obvious not having read the material. Most people know to obviously read the material before you walk into a room. But, um, you know, do as much background research, whether it's on the project or on the people as possible, so that you can go in there and show that, you know, you know what you're talking about. You're a professional. Um, you know, that, that is probably first and foremost. You know, when it comes to showrunners, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll have a client come out of a meeting and say, oh, my God, we met for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, and, you know, they kept asking me about myself and, you know, my background and how I got into writing, which most general meetings happen, and then they just kept asking me about me, and I got to talk about myself for an hour. I'm like, well, did you end up turning the conversation towards the material? And they said no, and then I turned to them and say, well, you didn't get the job. Um, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, being able to answer questions and talking about yourself, but being able to control the meeting enough to make sure that you, you know, get across whatever your agenda is. You should always walk in, you know, if you're meeting on a procedural show, uh, have episodic ideas in your back pocket. Sometimes showrunners will ask you, well, do you have any ideas for the show uh, or any episode ideas? Uh, again, in being overprepared, you should always think about three, four, you know, even just basic storylines that you'll be able to pitch out because they're going to want to see that you're quick on your feet, you have good ideas, and, you know, you'll be an asset in the room. Um, you know, most often when you come in extremely prepared, again, it sounds obvious, you know, it'll, it'll come across, you know, far more impressively than you just having a, a general conversation, whether it's with a producer or, you know, with a showrunner. Right. No, that's great advice. Now, I wanted to ask you in terms of writers who aren't yet at that point where they're taking meetings, but looking for representation themselves, in terms of looking for clients. Now, no matter how they got to you, whether it's through a contest or a referral or possibly even a query, I'm not sure you have time to read queries, but let's, just, let's say that somebody gets you their script and you like that. Uh, you mm -hmm. like the script and you want to meet with them. What sort of advice do you have for aspiring writers who are taking meetings with a rep? And also, what type of material should they have? How, how much material should they have in their sort of arsenal? Is it better to have just that one great piece and that's the only thing that really matters if they have one great piece? Or do you prefer two or three pieces? Obviously, having a dozen pieces is probably a little scary. But right. uh, uh, what do you think is the right amount of material as well? Well, I think the ultimate goal when you're writing something, especially for TV, is to have that one great, you know, what I like to call signature piece of material. And it sometimes it happens right away. Sometimes it takes years to to find that piece, that that one script that is going to get you job after job after job. And you know, one big piece of advice that I give writers when I, when I talk to them all the time is that, you know, it, it's very different in features than a TV. When you write a feature spec, you know, you want to sell it. You're writing it to sell it. You don't necessarily write it as a sample. I am a big proponent 
of not writing a pilot to sell it. And, you know, you're right. You write a pilot to showcase your voice. And, and that's really the most important thing I would say when I'm sitting down with somebody is like, know your voice. Um, you know, I have a harder time wrapping my head around meeting with someone who's like, I want to write on a sci-fi show. I want to write on a comedy. I want to write on, you know, a procedural. I want to, you're all over the place. It's, uh, there are writers who have incredible range who can write on a, a variety of different genres um, and different types of shows. But when you're starting out, you know, it's better to not be all over the place. Be very focused as far as, you know, I, I'm going to be able to send you out there because you are a great, you know, uh, you know, serialized character drama writer. Um, you know, or you're, you know, you really love procedural shows. You've, you've got a great, you know, character driven procedural, um, you know, that, uh, you know, you can really, I, I as a rep can really focus on targeting specific places rather than having 10 samples that cover everything. Eventually, you know, as, you know, if I'm representing you and I, I really learn your taste and your voice even more, you know, you can expand your horizon, but to present a representative with, six different pilots or eight different pilots and different genres. To me, that tells me you don't know who you are as a writer. Mm -hmm. And um, again, there are exceptions to the rule, but when you're trying to break in, you know, it really is a matter of having that one, really one, if you have two, that's fantastic. That's really rare. But having that one great piece that is going to stand out from the pack, you know, I, when I obviously read a lot of scripts and you know, I think a big mistake that a lot of writers make is that they look to see what's on television and they try to emulate whatever is a hit. Right. And it feels derivative in practically 100% of the cases. Mm -hmm. You know, during staffing season, which we're in right now, you know, between the studio execs, the network executives, showrunners, producers, they have uh, stacks of hundreds of scripts that they've been submitted and, you know, I've been on the other side and reading those submissions. And most of the time, the scripts are exactly the same. And especially when you're at the lower level, where it's so difficult to break in and get your first job, uh, it's incredibly difficult. You need to write something that is, you know, that, you know, cuts against the norm. Um, you know, something that doesn't feel like we've seen on TV and doesn't mean like write something completely outrageous. That's ridiculous, but you know, just something that's different. Um, something that conceptually is going to get somebody's attention to say, Oh, you know what? I've never read that before. If it's on television, chances are there's probably like 50 other scripts just like it or similar to it. Um, especially on broadcast TV. So, you know, it really is a matter of finding something conceptually that is going to feel different because, you know, executives crave, you know, reading something that is nothing like anything else out there. And, you know, it, it starts with the, obviously the basic idea, because in order to get someone's attention like mine or somebody else's, it, it starts with a log line mm -hmm. and, you know, if you wrote, if you wrote a log line that says, Oh, it's about, you know, a cop who gets shot in the head and now he can, you know, uh, now he has special powers. 
that's good. I feel like that gets pitched every year, first of all. And, you know, it, it doesn't feel any different than anything else that, you know, I've seen or read before. Um, hopefully that answers that in my yeah. long-winded way of explaining it. Um, well, you specifically mentioned log lines, and so I'm sure you read a lot of log lines. What are some of the most common problems you see with log lines you read, other than that sort of derivative nature of many of them? They're too long. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think being able to describe what you, write, what, what you wrote in a couple sentences, it's kind of an art form in and of itself. Uh, you know, to be able to hook you know, whoever's reading it into wanting to read your script, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll read stuff that's like three paragraphs long. I'm like, I, uh, I can't, I just can't. Um, so being able to write it succinctly and clearly where the concept gets across, you don't need to tell me about all your characters in the log line. All it is is really just telling me what the idea is in like two or three sentences um, I would say that's probably, you know, one mistake I see outside of obviously the idea of being completely derivative and mm -hmm. you know, something I've seen before. And, and a lot of times because, you know, writers aren't in it, they're, they, they don't, they're not in the middle of, you know, reading every spec that's out there. Like they're not going to know, you know, if they've landed on something that, you know, feels different. So it's easy for me to sit here and say that while I understand at the same time, it's really difficult without having the knowledge of you know what has and has not been written before so you're sort of throwing darts into the wind but uh you know i would say those are the two two biggest things that i notice right so log lines more than one sentence okay more than two sentences okay i would say no, no more than three sentences as long as the, the each sentence isn't four lines long <laughs> right uh -huh. so <laughs> If it is, then that tells me you can't write because right. that's a really long run on sentence. Gotcha. Now, we hear a lot from aspiring writers struggling you know, to get read and break in that no one accepts unsolicited material. Perhaps you can explain why unsolicited material is generally turned away and, and maybe a few suggestions for newer writers to sort of get their materials out there and read, like maybe competitions or networking, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it used to be... All, well, it's a few things. I mean, legally... Uh, you know, you'll have people send out waivers to sign before they'll accept anything. I think that's, it's for legal reasons, you know, on every movie and every television show that makes it to the public, there's at least one lawsuit about someone who said they stole my idea. Mm -hmm. I spoke to somebody in business affairs once at, uh, at a major network and they said every single show, uh, generates at least one lawsuit. Wow. Um, which I found fascinating, but not all that surprising. Right. So that's, that's one, one reason, you know, secondly, what, what a lot of people don't realize, Oh, they, I sent out a query and I never heard back. It's, you know, we, we have enough on our plate just dealing with our own clients and the business at, at large that, you know, we're really busy people and, you know, it's, uh, we're not going to respond to everything. For me, I, I don't, the query letter is, it's tough. Like, I, I don't think I've ever found anybody off of a, you know, generic query letter. And to be perfectly honest, I barely even read them anymore. Um, every once in a while, something will catch my attention. I couldn't even tell you why. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could just be even like the title of the script, and then I'll open it up and read the log line. 
So I, I don't necessarily find query letters all that helpful in, in finding new business. Um, I would say the biggest thing that writers and new writers can do is network because I do find uh, clients from, as, from recommendations from my current clients. Hey, I you know, met a guy and they sent me their script and I read I really liked it. You know, I told him I would pass it on to you. I take those recommendations very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously from other representatives, you know, agents, lawyers, executives, etc. But chances are writers aren't going to be able to network with those people if they're unrepresented. Right. They'll have a better chance of networking with fellow writers than they would, you know, with executives. Mm-hmm. So you know, some people just don't know that many people. If you know somebody who knows somebody, you know, don't be shy and, you know, say, Hey, can I sit down with you for 10 minutes and just pick your brain? Um, so that, that is probably the the best thing that you can do for your career. If you're just starting out is to network with other writers. Um, what about assistance? Maybe yeah, agency too. assistance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure. I mean, some assistants, you know, want to be a lot of assistants want to be writers themselves, mm-hmm. and they're trying to break in. So, you know, you'll you'll have assistants sort of, you know, try to block you um, <laughs> from moving up, is because they're trying to get their stuff read as well. So, but you know, there are, you know, assistants who are, you know, in the executive world and on the representation side that want to do those jobs and, you know, are, are looking out for, you know, people to, to bring into the company if they're, you know, at an agent or agency or management company. So yeah, for sure. How long do you usually give a screenplay before you stop reading it? If it doesn't, you know, wow you. If it's bad, I know in one page. Really? Um, yeah, I can tell after one page. What is, uh, what stands out about scripts that bad that you know in one page other than you it's know, spelling not something that is is tangible mm-hmm. you know if the description is extremely dense <laughs> and the first few lines of dialogue i'm rolling my eyes mm-hmm. there's no way that script is getting any better and i'm not going to waste my time right gotcha. um if it's a concept that i love uh and the script may not be right for me i read for voice I don't read a piece of material and say and think like, oh my God, I could go out and sell this thing right away, or I can go out and get this person a job right away. Um, I look at it for voice. Like for me, I'm I'm going to sign somebody as a long-term proposition, and this first or second thing that they wrote, I know it's not going to be perfect, but if I see a voice in there, uh, I'll read the whole thing, and I'll be more apt to, you know, if it's the right voice, develop that until I think it's great and then take it out. So, uh, you know, it just depends. Um, you know, if I'm on the fence, I'll give it, you know, 10, 15 pages. Um, oftentimes I don't get that far because if I'm unsure moving into the 10th page, chances are it's probably not going to be great. Right. Um, but you know, anywhere from one to 10 pages. Gotcha. Now you had mentioned that queries based on your schedule aren't particularly effective. And obviously you mentioned referrals as well. What are the other sort of ways you may have found clients and, and where would you consider looking for clients uh, or reading 
uh, potential sure. clients. Contests, what are contests that matter, like nickel, blacklist, do you pay attention to the blacklist? Not obviously the blacklist, that's the industry blacklist, but the one that uh, is the... Yeah, the site. website. Right, the site. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm on the blacklist emails. Um, you know, I I look at that more than I look at queries, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't dissect the blacklist you know, emails and recommendations all that much, but I will look at them, you know, far more than I would look at, you know, queries. Um, although to be fair, I've never, uh, you know, pulled a script out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, nickel definitely is, is probably the one contest I, I probably pay the most attention to. Um, but, uh, you know, there are other, you know, there are other places that writers can go, especially on the TV side, uh, you know, whether it's, um, you know, uh, actually probably the best one that I would recommend more than everything is the uh, Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that I would say has the by far the best track record um, and is the most well-respected of any of the quote-unquote programs, writing programs out there, because most of the, most of the people that get into that program get a job off of that program. So it's tough to get in, but if you get in, you know, you're sort of given not just one, but two feet in the door. And, you know, I've gotten a number of clients out of that program that, you know, have gone on to incredibly successful careers. Um, that I would say above all else is, is, you know, the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, uh, diverse ABC, the ABC fellowship is another good one. Um, I don't think as good as the Warner brothers one, but, but still a good one. Um, so there are a few of these writing workshops, uh, programs out there. I would apply to every single one of them. Um, yeah. because I think people in my position, we, we pay much more attention you know, to those programs, then, you know, you know, I placed fourth in the slam dance screenwriting competition, or I was a quarter finalist in the, right. you know, horror.com, you know, screenwriting contest. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, we have some listener questions. We have actually a few of them, so I, I wanted to run them by you. Sure. The first one says... What should the subject header in my query email say? If it says query, will the manager or agent just hit delete? Yes. Okay. There you go. Um, I would say there's uh, another fine line being between being clever and being too cute mm-hmm. in it. Um, a lot of writers will write, you know, uh, interior A.B. Fisher's office. Um I roll my eyes at that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I get, I give bonus points for people who are clever and trying to get my attention, but not trying too hard where it, again, it becomes a little too cutesy. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't give you an example, but yeah, if it says query, I hit delete. Gotcha. That's as, as straightforward as I could put it. <laughs> Good to know. I think you answered the question very succinctly. Here's the next question. I haven't spoken with my manager in almost a year and a half, and he stopped returning my calls. 
If I sign with a new manager, do I even need to contact and fire my old manager, or is it just assumed he dropped me and I'm no longer a client? I never signed a contract with this manager, and he never got me any work, although he did send out my scripts. I would send him an email um, and just say, hey, you know, thanks for everything you've done for me in the past. We haven't spoken in a long time. You know, I think you and I both know that, you know, I think the relationship has run its course. I just wanted to let you know I've signed with somebody new and, you know, thank you for everything. I wish you nothing but the best and leave it at that. I would send an email, um, especially if the person, you know, had done some work for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, it is an issue. If you guys haven't spoken in a year and a half, there is no chance that that person is currently representing you actively. Right. So, um, but, you know, I'm always one you know, to keep my side of the street clean and, you know, do the right thing. And, uh, you know, I would, I would send an email. Good to know. Here's another one. I sent a script to a management company a month ago from their request, but I haven't heard back yet. I have since completed a new draft that I'm really happy with. Should I send them the new draft or is it too late? That's a tough one. Um, because that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine where, you know, I'm giving you a chance by, you know, reading your material. And I think the fact that it's been a month, just I would say that falls under the category of, hey, they're busy. Uh, They have to prioritize what they're reading. Client material comes first. You know, uh, other movies or, you know, pilots or whatever that get picked up, if if they're trying to keep up with it and trying to read everything, that probably comes second. New business, probably third, especially, you know, from an underrepresented writer. But getting back to my original point, uh, you know, when I request a script, um, I'm assuming that you finished it. (laughs) And, you know, if you email me two weeks later or three weeks later and say, hey, I have a new draft. And let's say I've started it, but haven't finished it. Now you've just wasted my time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now, uh, okay, you have a new draft. Well, I've already started reading your script. Um, you know, to me, that shows a bit of a lack of confidence in your writing. If you're constantly, like, rewriting the script, I wouldn't send a script out until you think it's ready to be read. Um, again, I, I, I have a bit of a pet peeve about stuff like that, so... Um, I would say that no, don't send it. Um, I would imagine other people feel like I do, but, uh, um, yeah, it may, it may backfire. Yeah. That generally seems to be the consensus that I've heard in, in other conversations with managers that, uh, yeah, let it lie. And and if they actually like that version, then you can come back and say, well, you know, I make come other changes and this and that. Yeah, if they like it right. and they want to engage in a conversation sure. about it, chances are they're going to give you some thoughts and ideas and you take those ideas along with the rewrite that you just did yeah. and incorporate that into the script and hopefully that makes it an even better right. project and you know you could send it back to them at that point. I mean if they hate it, chances are, you know, a couple week rewrite is probably not going to make a yeah. difference anyway. Right. And sort of segueing to another question that we've gotten before is somebody saying that uh, I queried someone, I don't remember who it was, and they wanted to read my script, but I haven't written it yet. Can I tell them that I'll get it to them, you know, or what's the length of time that I can tell them that I can have it to them by? And 
it still be okay? Is a month or two months okay? And I'm like, why did you query them at all at that point? Well, that was my question. Like, why would you send out a query for something that you haven't written yet? Right, just because you have an idea? Yeah. Yeah, that sort of defeats the purpose. (laughs) Right. Um, uh, Yeah, that that is a big problem. You've got bigger problems if you're, you know, you're trying to snag, you know, someone's attention with, you know, just hot air. Right. Uh, and there's nothing tangible for them to look at. So I would not even answer that. And I would say, don't query him. Don't right. query anybody with an idea. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till it's written and then, you know, send your emails out. Yeah. Because I, I think, again, that probably would backfire. Yeah. You know, they say, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me read that. What are you going to respond to that? Oh, sorry. You just don't respond. And then, you know, now you've, there's no way they're going to read your stuff. If you respond and say, well, sorry, it's just an idea I haven't written yet, then they'll feel like, you know, again, you're wasting their time and you're not taking, you know, this seriously. So, um, you know, it is so competitive out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you are trying to get into this business as a writer, you've got to really want to be a writer. Um, it's sort of like actors, like you're getting rejected constantly, which, you know, feels like crap. Um, so, you know, not everyone's going to like your writing. Um, you got to have thick skin, but most of all, you've, you've got to take your job seriously. If you're a writer, you know, you got to write and writing a query letter without writing the script is, <laughs> that's actually terrible. That sounds awful <laughs> <laughs> and surprising. But, yeah. uh, I had never heard that one before. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think they even went on to say something like, uh, oh, is it okay if I tell them that I'm currently working on a rewrite of it and you know, I'll have it for them in a couple of months? Well, that, you know, to give them time to write the draft. But I'm thinking, why would you even query it if you're still working on it? I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. What's the um, best case scenario there? They yeah. they respond and say, just get it to me whenever. I mean, there is no good scenario that ends no. well for you there. You slap something no. together in two months and it's terrible and they never want to hear from you. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Um, not good. Yeah. Here's another one. Why does everyone say to try getting a manager before getting an agent? Well, because, well, a couple reasons. Um, you know, the the volume of business that most agents have don't afford them the time to, you know, really develop somebody. Um, you know, my uh, the number of people that I represent is far less than the number of people, people in the standard agent would represent. And, you know, uh, managers, you know, are more interested in developing voices and have the time to develop voices. Like there, I, I've had a number of clients that I signed, you know, uh, work with them for like a year plus before I would send them out to agents. Like I found them, you know, I'm more apt to read somebody who, you know, has never sold anything or have, hasn't done anything, you know, probably than an agent would because, just because of the sheer volume uh, of business that they have, they just don't have the time. They don't have the time to, you know, sit on the phone or sit in a room and give round after round after round after round of notes on a project that just, you know, there are agents that do do that, but I think those are definitely the exceptions to the rules. So, you know, you're, especially when you're starting your career, uh, you know, you, need to be nurtured. Uh, you're not, most people who have never done anything before just starting to write their first scripts, you know, 
are not going to be ready to with a piece of material and thrown out there and thrown to the wolves, uh, chances are the material is going to need work um, to be able to get into a place where it's going to get some people's attention. Again, there are always exceptions to the rule, but uh, having a manager whose you know job it is to do that. Um, that's why you're, you're more apt to hear that, you know, you're better off getting a manager because the manager can also help you get a great agent, you know, especially if they're working on your material with you. Uh, you know, if, if your script drastically improves through that, through that process, chances are you're going to get a much better agent than you would have if you went after the agent first, if you're even able to get them to read it and respond. Right. That's good. And lastly of the listener questions, and this one I thought was funny. Why didn't you respond to my query? And it wasn't directed at you in particular. It was just a general Me? question. I, don't even, I didn't even read your query. I deleted it. <laughs> um, but I thought it was a funny question. But in seriousness, what are some of the things, other than a really bad log line, that can make you less likely to respond, if you were to respond at all? But, you know, when you see a query, what is it about it, like if you decide to read one, that would make you go, you know what, delete. Let me think. I mean, there are, I could probably count them on one hand. There are certain writers that send out a query every other week. Really? Uh, this doesn't directly answer your question, but <laughs> uh, which shows me they're writing a script every other week, which tells me that none of their stuff is good. Right. Because that's impossible. Right. Um, but, you know, really, I don't think, I don't think there's really much. Like if, if they wrote, a log line that I responded to, chances are there's probably not much else in that email that's going to turn me off because um, they've probably done their job and have written a, a good log line that didn't make me delete the email before I even opened it. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. I don't know if I've ever read one that I felt like, oh, wow, this is, this is a really interesting idea. Oh, but he wrote that he's a serial killer. Delete. You know, <laughs> um, I yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've ever had that. I think really, it is really mostly about if you're going to get somebody to open it and actually read it, it's about the idea itself and writing a succinct, clear log line that's going to hook me. Right. Just on a, on a side note, something I thought was funny when you mentioned a serial killer in the uh, query letter is that during the NFL draft, somebody had said, because there were a number of players who had like drug issues and things like mm -hmm. that, and whether or not that would affect their draft status, and it did to some of them. But one of the analysts had joked, if Hannibal Lecter was an unbelievable, amazing football player, first-round talent, a team would still draft him and just say he had an eating disorder. <laughs> so I guess that's the long line. If it's that good, yeah. some of the other stuff. Well um, said. Just tilting on that and, and looking at it from a different angle. Okay, so query letters. How long should it be and what should be in it in an ideal query? Uh, you know, three paragraphs at most, small paragraphs. Mm -hmm. um, again, like when I see query, I'm instantly, you know, guarded. Mm -hmm. So if I don't delete it and I open it up, it shouldn't take me more than, you know, 20 seconds to read it. You know, because I've got 10 emails that have just come in behind it. Right. So, you know, be respectful of someone's time. Because if I see, if I open up an email, uh, open up a query, and I see it's an entire page of writing, mm -hmm. I'm not going to read it. Yeah. Don't put, I wouldn't put uh, a page of your script in the query either with dialogue. 
that's not going to do it. I think it really is just a matter of like, this is the idea. If the other thing you could put in there is if, if there's anything interesting, uh, and I probably should have said this before, if there's anything really compelling or interesting about your background, um, especially on the television side, mm-hmm. uh, that can be a difference maker too. Um, you know, if you're a former journalist, you're a former, uh, you know, if you're a novelist, if you are and not, you know, an aspiring one, but an actually published one, right. uh, lawyer, doctor, former FBI agent, like anything that, because uh, that's another way for rep- representatives to be able to sell you outside of your material. Although there are a ton of lawyers that have become writers, I represent a few of them. Um, but anything interesting, like if you worked in, you know, the Peace Corps in Iraq. Uh, again, something from your background that's going to make you distinct outside of whatever it is that you're, you, you're writing, uh, that can be just as important you know, to uh, me as it would, uh, obviously, first and foremost, is what's on the page. And you have something from you know, your background that is really interesting, that's really going to get my attention. Mm-hmm. And just to sort of clarify that as well, the reason that it's especially important, your background in television, is because that can definitely help get you a job. And when you go into those showrunner meetings you, and it's a cop show and you were a former cop, that's definitely going to help. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, on legal shows, sometimes they don't want or they'll have one lawyer on staff, that lawyer might be you. But yeah, you know, depending upon the show, if you have, you know, a particular expertise um, from a previous job that you had, uh, yeah, that can go a long way because not everybody is, you know, going to be a, uh, you know, like Shonda Rhimes' new pilot is about a forensic accountant. And I actually had a client who their first job was as a forensic accountant. I guarantee there's not a single writer in town <laughs> who's pitching their background as a forensic accountant. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, that can definitely make a, a big difference when, you know, going out for staffing. Yeah. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a forensic accountant. They must've missed their booth at the job fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. And lastly, this is the section we like we call reading, watching, playing, and listening to, since we're running a little short on time. Uh, what are you reading, watching, playing, and listening to, assuming you have any free time during staffing season? Yeah, this I tend to do the least amount of extracurricular <laughs> activities during this time of the year, but uh, uh, I would love to say I, my, my wife really like makes fun of me because all I want to do is read a book mm-hmm. and I never get a chance to read a book. And every year when we go on vacation, I buy a new book. And when I, when I sit down to read it, the last thing I want to do is read. Because, <laughs> right. um, all I do is read. Yeah. So, uh, I would take reading off the table, uh, watching right now. I am, as I have been obsessed with game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge game of Thrones fan. Uh, so that I would probably put first on my list. Um, uh, playing, uh, I got two kids who are obsessed with Minecraft, so okay. I'm not playing Minecraft, but I'm forced to watch them play Minecraft mm-hmm. constantly. Um, and, uh, listening to, I'm a big Spotify fan, uh, um, big music buff. So, uh, I'm currently obsessed with Alabama shakes. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of them lately. 
yeah, that's uh, awesome. the headlines, I would say. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring screenwriters, or is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, I would say the, the, the biggest piece of advice that, you know, I tend to give writers is, you know, just in ge- generally speaking, is to be prolific. Um, I think writers forget that, you know, being a manager, that's my career. Right? This is my job. This is I take it very, very seriously. And if you want to be taken seriously as a writer, you need to write and you need to be prolific. Not uh, another thing that writers forget is that or don't you know think about because you write something and it's your baby. But not everything you write is going to be good, mm-hmm. and not every idea fits into whatever medium you know you want to be writing in. Um, like if you want to be a feature writer. The idea that you're writing may not be a feature idea. Um, it could be a TV idea. It could be a short story. It could be a novel. Um, and writing, you know, I've used samples, you know, that aren't for TV, that aren't pilots as samples. You know, I've used short stories. Um, so, but, you know, also knowing that, you know, if you are uh, uh, lucky enough to get represented, um, the notes process is an important part of the process and know that, uh, you know, us as reps or anybody giving you notes and have taken the time to read your material and give you our thoughts. Uh, it's to help you. I think oftentimes writers will get defensive about, you know, certain notes that are being given and, you know, we're not trying to piss you off, you know, in giving you, a note. We're trying to make your material better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually if you, you know, make it in the business and you sell features and you sell pilots, um, you're going to be getting a lot of notes and learning how to take a note, you know, is again, a, a skill set that, you know, needs to be learned, but try not, trying not to get defensive, uh, when somebody is giving you notes, that's something I see, especially with new writers often, um, and you would think it wouldn't be the case because you would think people would be very much appreciative of, of, you know, your time and thought into whatever it is that you wrote. But uh, be conscious of that. I think there are a lot of people who, a lot of writers and aspiring writers who, you know, a lot of people in this business have an ego. And, but know that, uh, you know, being defensive, again, is, is uh, an extreme turnoff. Right. Um, but being prolific, I would say, is probably first and foremost – um, you know, because again, not everything is going to be good. And you're, you're constantly in search of finding that signature sample that is, is going to get everybody's attention. Right. Oh, that's all great advice. Thanks for coming on the show, AB. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. And be sure to follow AB on Twitter and it's at abfisher123. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. And thanks for listening. <laughs>